Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made without God made with gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the, uh, into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet, to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are to open, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly." For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is God's word. Amen. And you may be seated. So last week we saw sort of firsthand what it looks like when the kingdom of God infiltrates, clashes with the kingdom of this world. Last week was a proof text that the Holy Spirit and the kingdom of heaven are greater than he who is of this world. The Holy Spirit came in power and authority, bringing about repentance and conversion and baptism and everlasting life for the Gentiles who were in Asia. Paul worked tirelessly day after day, reasoning in the hall of Tyrannus for two years, preaching the gospel from the prophets. The word increased among them, and all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, and the message was so far-reaching, accompanied by miracles by the hand of Paul through God, that even the, um, the, the Jewish exorcists were exposed. And 
magicians came together and had this giant book burning, and they burned their valuable magic literature. This was a revival that took place in Ephesus. The masses were turning to Christ. They had bowed the knee to a greater kingdom. So last week, this is what we saw. God's kingdom is greater. God's kingdom is awesome. This is visible victory over the domain of darkness. But what happens in war when it seems like things are a little bit more tumultuous? You know, when you're arm wrestling and you stay in the middle a little longer than you thought you would. The end of the passage is much different than how the passage begins. In a sense, there's no real competition in the first passage, you know, uh, and there's no competition in reality at all because he's king of kings and lord of lords. But the passage today shows us that even though the Spirit of God shows up, not everybody repents. Not everybody burns their books. Others will insist on starting another kind of fire, the kind that draws a crowd, that seeks to envelop and hide the burning smoke of repentance that was already taking place through the book burning. It appears that they have some success at first as we read this, this great riot that takes place in Ephesus. But we know that the Spirit of God has a flame that burns far brighter and can never be snuffed out. Paul himself might have even been taking the success a little bit for granted because the text begins in verses 21 and 22 telling us he was ready to go. You know, he kind of had been here for two years preaching in the hall of Tyrannus, people getting saved, there's a church started. You know, I'm going to go back and check on the folks in Macedonia and then I'll, I'll work on my ministry report that I'm going to give when I make my way back to Jerusalem. He'd already started writing that thing. And then he's like, then I'm going to Rome. You know, he's, he's ready to go, ready to move on. My, my time is done here. But when it just felt like he was time to go, that's when the fire started. I think oftentimes we get comfortable in our lives and subconsciously believe that we're all done with trials because things are going pretty good. You know, we had our hard days. But this week, we, this week ain't so bad, so I'm going to put my feet up. I'm going to take this as a sign from the Lord that he's going to just lessen my load for a while. Things are going to get easy from here on out. Those are our famous last words, right? We love to plan that way. Once we get to this point, things are going to be easy. We're going to do this, and then things are going to be easy. That's just not how Christianity works. We have to always be ready for war because at the end of the day, we are foreigners in enemy territory. We are citizens of heaven wandering around in a world of darkness. We live among those who love the darkness rather than the light. And this is the cause of many of our trials here on earth, that we live in a place of darkness. So trials come. Are you ready to fight? One of the best ways to be prepared in any war is to know the strategy of the enemy. And I think that's what this text sort of lays bare for us this morning, is how the world operates, how the world behaves, so we can anticipate it, not do it ourselves, and know how to respond. So the first strategy in worldly warfare this morning is self-preservation. Self-preservation. Verse 23, after Paul made all his plans, it says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Paul had resolved to move on, but then a spark of controversy began. When the Bible says no little disturbance, that means it was kind of a big deal. It was pretty gnarly. The source of this disturbance was, it says, the way, with a capital W. We learn from the book of Acts that that's what the early Christians were called. 
They were given that name. They didn't choose that name. They were called the followers of the way. Kind of like how in the Reformation, we were given the name Protestants, whether we wanted it or not. There is this connotation, even in just giving them the title the way, that you are against us. You are a problem. There is resistance here. You are protesters. And so spearheading this disturbance concerning the way was this guy named Demetrius. He was a silversmith. Uh, who provided the material for shrines that would be devoted to the goddess of Artemis. He was good at his job, and the text also says he brought no little business. He was the guy that all the craftsmen had on speed dial. This was their source where they went and got their silver for their idol making. And so Demetrius decides to call a special meeting with all the craftsmen in Ephesus to build his argument and start a rebellion against the people of the way. And he says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And this Paul has persuaded a great many people throughout all of Asia to turn away from Artemis, claiming that gods made by hands are not gods at all. I think the initial strategy here of Demetrius is threefold. First, draw the biggest crowd you can so that it appears you have numbers on your side. Second, show how this is a threat to each one's personal livelihood and wealth. He even says, this is a great danger. And third, don't just make it personal. Make it appear as a vendetta against their nation's God and thus the entire nation itself. They want to overthrow all of Ephesus and destroy the temple of Artemis. This was Demetrius' strategy to overthrow Paul and the followers of the way. I think we could describe it better as making a lot of noise with very little actual content. Ultimately, they didn't care about Artemis. I think what they were trying to do here was save their own skin. They were trying to preserve self. There's a few lessons we can learn on this kind of behavior, to expect it from the world, and then know how to respond to it and to avoid doing it ourselves. First, we learn from Demetrius that the person who is the loudest is not the person who is necessarily right. Anyone can draw a crowd. Anyone can say the right things to hype up a people. The world loves to trigger one another with triggering words, and the world loves to be triggered. This is how our news and media operate. They pick a triggering conversation. They make it the central focus of every news station on every delivery platform from the newspaper to CNN. And all these ideologies trickle down then into our homes. And we have a choice to make to either believe them, to be triggered by them like the rest of the world and start to panic, or by reason, reason informed by our Christian worldview, trust in Jesus and be at peace. In fact, it seems that we live in a day really where nobody has any convictions at all. We are just tossed to and fro by the waves of the world. Most of us don't know how to think for ourselves. Whoever has the megaphone, that is who we will follow. This is perilous. Let it not be said of the church. Instead, whatever the grand narrative that's being spun by the world in our culture today, we ought to use as an opportunity to talk about truth with our children at the dinner table. How are we to think about what the guy said on the news today? How are we to respond to the LGBT agenda and abortion rights? How are we to uh, respond to issues of racism and social justice? 
How is the Christian supposed to respond to the increasing law of tolerance and relativism in our country? And these controversies shouldn't trigger us, and they shouldn't dictate what I preach in the pulpit, and they shouldn't dictate how we do ministry, how we do church, but they should be things that we are not afraid to talk about in our homes, in discipling relationships, teaching one another, not living in fear of the noise. It's just noise. So we teach one another to listen and to judge rightly, not by who is the loudest, but what God has said. What has God said? Another quick application here, I think, is the love of money, right? The Bible does say that it is a root of all kinds of evil. And it's not surprising that out of concern for their great wealth, not even their livelihood necessarily, that they, they make this argument. They are concerned for their riches. They want to bring down Paul and all the church in Asia. And it's amazing contrast between these guys and the multitude of magicians who just laid down $6 million worth of books. They heard the same gospel. Half the city repented. Half the city clung to their wealth. It is so hard for a rich person to go or to repent and believe in the kingdom as a camel goes through the eye of a needle. Anytime I talk about money from the pulpit, I feel like it's met with a little bit of personal resistance. Here's what I mean. We talk about the love of money as if we could never have it because we're poor. Surely he's talking about the people in Hollywood, right? He's not talking about the people in Spindale. Y'all know the poverty level here? You know where we're living? Like, surely we don't have a problem here. I don't have money to love, right? But friends, this sin is just as dangerous for the rich man as it is for the poor man. Greed is a sin that infiltrates every human heart in every tax bracket. This often comes in the form of justification like Demetrius was doing. Rather than seeing the power of God on display, repenting and believing the gospel, he felt his bank account could be threatened. And so this was a humble act of self-preservation, or at least that's how he sold it. We need to be concerned, brothers, for our money is at stake. This is a tactic that the world uses to create fear and deceive. Money is a sensitive subject. No one wants their hard-earned cash to be messed with. But instead of being controlled by fear, I think the Bible would commend us instead to hold all of our possessions down to the penny with a very loose grasp. Because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away and everything we have belongs to Him anyways. And he owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. There's nothing that he cannot provide us with if we were in need. This is how we are to live with our money, ready to treasure, lay down our treasures at any time for a greater glory. And after all, for the Christian, right, self-preservation isn't something we need to worry about. The Lord preserves his people. He preserves Paul in this passage by not letting him be torn limb from limb among the crowds in just a few minutes, right? Our God is competent, and when we hold all of our possessions tightly, we preach a different God who is incompetent to take care of us, right? Our scramble for self-preservation is a warning sign that money may be an idol. Idols made by hands bring us comfort, security, pleasure, self-assurance. 
Demetrius panics in verse 27, anxious that the great goddess Artemis might be deposed of all her magnificence and brought to nothing. Uh, Artemis, we'll talk more towards the end, was the god of Asia, so to speak, uh, and to be a resident of Asia was to worship this goddess Artemis. And who are we, they thought, without this great goddess? Demetrius' idolatry is in plain sight. Anyone can see it. It's a public panic attack, and it's contagious. All the while, Paul was just preaching the gospel. The good news of a Savior who paid the ultimate penalty of sin and death and hell, who raises us from our spiritual graves through the converting power of the Holy Spirit, who comforts us, who supplies all our needs until he calls us home, in which we will reign with him in glory forever, needing nothing or anything completely satisfied in his preserving power. The one true God, Jesus Christ, is the only one to be worshipped and the only one who will truly preserve his People. Our call to worship was Psalm 17, which goes well with Acts 19. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is this life. You fill their womb with treasure, and they're satisfied with children. They leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Our portion is not of this world. Artemis, in all her magnificence, can never satisfy the human soul like Jesus. The second strategy we see employed by worldly men here, self-preservation, and then, again, I've already mentioned it, empty noise. Empty noise. The passage started with Demetrius drawing a hungry crowd, right? He caused a scene and gathered the numbers he needed in order to create a stir. This next section shows us he really had nothing to say, and the people had nothing to follow. It was an elaborate ruse to distract from the gospel that was taking seed in Ephesus. Verse 28 says that when they heard Demetrius' speech, they were enraged and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. First, Demetrius' plan here seemed to be working. The people bought it. They immediately began, began chanting the glory of Artemis. If we keep reading, we see this isn't really a formulated plan of attack. He doesn't really have a, a what's next. This is kind of as far as he gets. This was contagious anxiety. He has a public panic attack. Everybody else starts to panic. You watch the news. The meteorologist says, snow's coming. What's happened? What do we do? We close school for no reason, Right? And the snow doesn't even come. And we go and buy all the milk and bread. This is what's going on. They're going crazy for no reason. Demetrius was the meteorologist saying, you need to panic. You need to take shelter now. You need to cause a big fuss. So verse 29 says, the entire city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater. Two of Paul's companions, they grabbed them, seized them, Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Macedonians that Paul had brought with him in his journey. They were seized like hostages, open to some kind of public shame. It doesn't seem like they were beaten or, or harmed, but they were used as bait. And this is a dangerous situation to be in. Everybody's confused. Everybody's chanting. Nobody really knows what's going on. They're enraged. The crowd is dangerous, and nobody knows why. What would you do if you were Paul? I'd probably stay home and drink a cup of coffee. 
That is not what Paul does. Verse 30 says that Paul wished to go in among the crowd. He wanted to defend the gospel in front of an angry mob. You know, maybe a little bit of Peter trying to come in and cut off an ear kind of thing. He wanted to protect his friends who'd been sequestered, but the disciples would not let him. The, disciple, the, the motive's not given in either, either way here. If this was a good thing, you know, on why Paul wanted to go in or what his plan was or why the disciples decided to stop him, but I do think that they were right for stopping him from entering this madhouse. Verse 31 says that even these Asiarchs, who were kind of these um, keepers of the Roman government, high-ranking officers, they knew Paul. Paul was friends with them. Shows you how, how close he was, rubbing shoulders uh, with the culture each day in the hall of Tyrannus. He had friends, and they sent to Paul and said, listen, brother, like, don't go in there. It's a death sentence. Don't open yourself to harm. I think this was good for Paul not to get involved. Again, not just for his own mortality, though, but because there was no reasoning with the mob. They were enraged. They were, there's no... There's no logic here. Everything happening is completely irrational. Verse 32, some cried out one thing, some cried another. The assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not even know why they had come together. They stormed the theater, which was a regular uh, place for like the big town business meetings. It could seat more than 20,000 people. And they said, we're starting our own meeting right now. We need to go into the assembly and get something done. So the mob has has morphed into assembly an assembly now they don't know why they've assembled they're all there in the theater someone gonna start the meeting i don't know i heard demetrius start started this thing like who what are who are those guys shackled down there at the bottom like what's what is happening right now and then in verse 33 the jews try to maybe calm things down they put forward this guy named alexander don't know anything about him don't know if he was a believer or just one of the the jews that that lived there part of the synagogue who thought maybe he could calm things down, bring order to the chaos. They would not listen. Instead, when they got up and they saw he was a Jew, probably assimilating him with the way or what Paul was doing, they continued to then chant for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Beloved, the noise of this world would love to get our attention. It's loud, it's boisterous, sometimes it's unignorable, but we must remember that it is also empty. Some of the new believers in Ephesus may have been grieved by the disturbing scene of all these people publicly worshiping and praising Artemis, right? We want the gospel to resound, we want Christ's name to be praised and lifted high in every nation in, um, in, in, in Asia. It's hard not to be affected by this scene. It is senseless rage camouflaged in the pitiful cry of an offended party and nationalistic worship. We know in truth there is no real competition between King Jesus and the goddess Artemis. All this is is just noise. I think it might be helpful here to think about how to respond to noise in the world. 
The world's strategy, again, is to be loud, to distract, to confuse us, to cause a scene, to display an inner rage that you have to listen to me. And it's an inner rage that nothing can satisfy. It defies logic. It's, it's just, there's no point to be made. It's not about right and wrong. It's not about making demands. It's about making noise. If we were to change our beliefs to, to suit all of culture and all of the news and platforms and everything that's against the church, they still would not be satisfied. Again, this is not about ideologies and um, what to believe in worldviews. This is about the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is about war with the church. So what we're really trying to address here is not how we respond to the unquenchable fire of those who hate Jesus and his church, but rather how we are to live. First, I think we can respond by being a Christian. Respond by being a Christian. The world looks vastly different from the church. Our best argumentation, our best response is to simply be who we are. I believe. Their characteristics are pride, violence, confusion. The church is commanded to be meek, gentle, led by the truth. Jesus preached the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How do we respond? Which is much what the Sermon on the the Sermon on the Mount is about how to respond to persecution, the evil of the world, Jesus says it's not so much about what you do, but who you are to be. Be, 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 be these things. Be poor in spirit, be meek, be hungry and thirsty for righteousness, be merciful, be a peacemaker. They want to define us by totally different definitions. They want to catch us in the act. They want Gaius and Aristarchus to be, you know, the problem children, the flagship uh, um, mascots for the church, and to put all kind of false labels on them. They want to misrepresent the church. Nobody had any real data on these guys. They're just standing there kind of confused at the bottom of the theater. There's no incriminating evidence. They pull these guys into the chaos as if they're the worst scum of the earth. You might have thought they were serial killers. The world loves to misrepresent the church still today in order to take a moral high ground. What do they say? Church is full of hypocrites. The church doesn't love me the way that I am. That church believes sex is bad and sends people to hell. They are racist. All they want is my money. They're so outdated. They need to keep up with the times if they want to reach my generation. They overlook abuse cases, manipulate their women, children. 
The list goes on and on and on and on and on of how we are represented by those who we never asked to represent us. So how do we respond? Jesus says, well, you're salt. Why don't you be salty? You're light. Why don't you shine your light and not hide it under a basket so that they may see your good works and glorify our Father? Peter perhaps says it best in 1 Peter 2, which we read, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be a Christian. Second thing we can do to respond to the madness is by opening our mouths from time to time and speaking the truth in love. One of the clearest contrasts between the world and the church here is confusion and order. They want something to believe in. They've got nothing. They're all talking over each other. It's, it's mass chaos and confusion. They don't even know why they're there. The church does not behave this way. Paul corrects the church in 1 Corinthians 14 for those who are speaking over one another in worship and using tongues. He says, you can all prophesy one by one so that we may all learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits and the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Our God is not a God of confusion. So neither should his people be. We are a God who know truth, who are led by truth, and walk confidently in the truth. That word that Paul uses for confusion is literally disorder, chaos, instability. This is how the world behaves, not the church. What separates us? We have God's word. We have truth. We're led by something stable. We're led by something that actually gives us structure and hope and meaning and life. The Lord has spoken. The Lord spoke into our lives of chaos and confusion. The peace of God entered in, and the Lord's truth is still doing that when God's people speak his truth in love to sinners. Jesus calmed the raging storm by the power of his word. Be still, raging seas. Be still. This is why we as a church are devoted to teaching the truth because nothing else can set us free. The world may hate us for it. The world may despise our truth and call it hatred or bigotry or all these other terms. By God's definition, he calls it love. There are times to open our mouth speak the truth in the madness. And finally, maybe the most important way to respond is by doing nothing at all, by staying home and drinking a cup of coffee. Paul did not go into the crowd. Praise the Lord. Paul did not go into the crowd. Sometimes, maybe most of the time, it's best not to participate in the foolishness. Oftentimes, it's just bait for us to bite so that we can engage with folly. Don't take the bait. Don't engage with folly. I don't think I have to say this, but some of y'all folks that are on social, social media, right? Do I need to even give you the application? Don't be a fool. I've not heard of one person who ever repented of their sins from a Twitter thread. It's folly. Don't interact with it. There are times to speak the truth online, right? But don't give them what they want. It's empty noise begging for attention. Don't give it to them. Why would we give them what they want? Do you really want to know what I think about Pride Month? 
Do you really want to know what I think about transgender people hosting library time? Do you really want to know what I think about white supremacy and wokeness? We're happy to have these conversations, right? But not when it's mere bait. Proverbs, we're reading. We read a lot of Proverbs today. Here's another one for you. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Be at peace. Don't give in to the noise. You don't have to be a Christian activist in the culture war or a keyboard warrior in order to be faithful to Christ. The text ends here with, you know, two hours of praising Artemis. Do you think that's going to get them anywhere? They make a lot of noise. And guess how it all ends? Silence. The third point here is not so much a strategy, but an outcome. The silence of the wicked. Verse 35. The town clerk had quieted. Word is used twice. The town clerk had quieted the crowd. Two hours of praising Artemis came to an end. The town clerk was kind of like this liaison person, kind of like how we would think of a moderator, um, you know, kind of spoke in between the people and the government to operate, you know, in, in peace and keeping, keeping both sides happy. He stood up, and they listened. They didn't listen to Alexander. This guy had respect. They knew who he was. And when he stood up, they hushed. And his speech appears really politically correct but also enlightening. He says in verse 35 and 36, everyone knows that Ephesus is the temple keeper of Artemis. Like there's no denying that Artemis has taken up residence here, right? Like we, why are you guys so upset? Everybody knows Artemis is, 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 is queen, is goddess. Um, everybody knows about the stone that fell from the sky. Who's going to argue with that, right? Evidently, there was this meteor that had fallen from the sky, had landed in Ephesus, and they were like, oh, let's praise, you know, the God who sent that. And then this temple was probably built around the meteor, and they called this goddess Artemis. This was a temple that they had dedicated to her, and where people basically did a lot of perverse and obscene things in front of a giant statue made of female body parts. Their impression was that this was the God of fertility and blessing. If they worshipped it this way, that they would be blessed in abundance of harvest. So the entire city fell hook, line, and sinker by a rock that fell out of the sky. So the town clerk says, calm down, guys. Temple's still standing. It's all good. Be at peace here. You ought to be quiet. Do nothing rash. Then after calming down, he does stick it to him a little bit. Verse 37 he says, the men you brought here, right, probably Aristarchus and Gaius, they didn't do anything wrong. We don't even know why they're here. Why did you bring them here? Verse 38, he says, if, if there's any actual complaints against anyone, you need to go to the court and use the powers that be. I don't see any sacrilegious activity. I don't see them blaspheming our goddess Artemis. So you need to take any charges you have to the pro-council, follow the protocols that we have set up in the Asian government. The theater is not open for this kind of business. Verse 40 is the real kicker. I love this. He says, we are really in danger. What was Demetrius' first word? There's danger. Our wealth is at stake. Now the town clerk says, we're in danger of being charged with rioting today. 
since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. He dismissed the assembly, and just like that, after hours of absolute chaos, it was over. The noise was silenced, and nothing happened. It was all a big sham. So it is with the empty noise of the world today. It will not last. You know, 2020 was a good year, huh? Uh, a year so many of us love to talk about and remember. I hope there comes a day where none of us can remember 2020. <laughs> uh, one day, perhaps 2020 will even be silenced. It was a year uh, full of riots, mostly peaceful protests, rebelling against police officers, senselessly destroying public property, looting. I think there was a town in Oregon that just said, we're going to do our own thing now. We don't need police, right? It was an embarrassing time to be an American citizen. But you know what? Every single one of those riots came to an end. Every single one. Do you know why they ended? The same reason that this riot ended in Ephesus. Multiple reasons. One reason, because the noise was irrational and unjustified. Once someone starts asking serious questions about what's going on here, people start to realize quickly that these arguments don't hold water. They're unjustified for their commotion. It's a very sad place to be when a nation can no longer tell the difference between a man and a woman. Logic defies our culture. It's irrational. There is no justification. It will not last. It also will not last because all this noise leads to destruction. The final end of the noise is destruction. The irony here is that they make this big noise, and the noise is what leads them to death. Proverbs 1, we read together last week, didn't we? Or the week before? I don't know. Yeah, the week before. Um, 117. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Demetrius thought he would gain the world if he could just get the crowds on his side and dispose of the church. In reality, he was losing his soul. The noise will stop naturally in death. And third, the noise will not last because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Getting crowds of people together to stir up a city and cause an uproar is nothing more than an attempt to stick it to the man and to show that together we are more powerful than even the king himself. But listen, if every single human being on planet Earth got together and said, we don't like the way things are happening. We're going to run the show now. God can get off his throne. What would happen? Would they out-sovereign God? That actually happened in Genesis 6. How'd it go? The Lord destroyed the entire earth. Flood. God is sovereign. We are not 
he will quiet the noise when enough is enough. That's good news, isn't it? And finally, because God is sovereign, that means there's only one song that will go on for eternity and never be silenced. Revelation 4 and 5 tells us that there is a throne in heaven receiving constant praise 24-7. Angelic creatures are worshiping, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. And we read on, and there's 24 elders who fall down before the throne, singing, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. After the angels and after the elders, we learn that everyone in heaven, everyone, is singing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then... We learn that every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them is singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The song of the Lord's glory far surpasses two hours of empty noise. Who is on the throne but the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. The most amazing thing about this king, in his preeminence, in his supremacy, his glory and his might, is that he also became a lamb. This world will fight tooth and nail for self-preservation. Our king gave up himself, even to the point of death, to make peace by the blood of his cross. And in his humility, it only made his glory shine all the brighter. He is the only one worthy to untie the scroll. He died the death we deserved. He rose from the dead to save sinners and give us a new name to praise. Great is Jesus of all the world. Great is Jesus of all the creation. Great is Jesus, Lord of hosts. He alone is king. Do you know the glory of Jesus Christ? If not, I urge you this morning to repent of your sins, to lay down your own glory and come to him and join the song that will never die. He is greater than all the empty noise of earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing your glory in power and authority in such a way that all noise becomes silenced. I pray that you would equip us, Father, knowing when to speak and when to simply move along to represent you well, to be in the faith, to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, 
Father, that the empty noise, perhaps even some of them might repent and believe in the gospel themselves. I pray for all of us here this morning that we would walk in truth and not be led astray and not be tossed to and fro by the waves of the world. Teach us to laud your name above all others and in savoring your glory to not be fearful of the noise of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.